Now, if you would, take your copy of God's Holy Word in your hands and turn with me again to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 6, we'll begin reading at verse 9, and we'll read through on into chapter 7, ending at verse 13. First, we will read God's Word, and then we'll pray and ask for his blessing upon our time in studying it together. Exodus 6, beginning at verse 9. This is God's holy word. Once again, take care, dear friends, how you hear it. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the sons of the life of, excuse me, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites, according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elishaba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eliezer, Aaron's sons, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. 
But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Though I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, the people, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. Just, they did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. When the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. Would you pray with me, friends? O Lord, your word is now spread before us. Would you open your hearts, excuse me, would you open our hearts and our minds to understand this, your word, and receive and rest upon Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel? Would you give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying? Help us to learn and read and mark and inwardly comprehend all that we study this day and to treasure it as the words of him who is the fount of every blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have lots of parents and grandparents in the room, lots of teachers of all stripes as well. And here's a phrase that you're probably all too familiar with. You're not listening. You're not listening. You all, just like us in the Morris household, have probably lost count of how many times this has happened with your kiddo. You tell him not to do something, and he proceeds to do it anyway, either oblivious or ignorant to the instructions, and also oblivious to the consequences. And 99 out of 100 times, we're telling him not to do something for his own good or safety. Don't touch the stove. It's hot, and you'll burn yourself. Obey when mom tells you to come back and stop running. That way, you don't someday run out into the street where there's traffic and so forth. But he will disobey on a minor infraction, and then there's, therefore, he'll receive punishment. He'll look at you when that punishment is received, stunned and flabbergasted as to why he's being punished, wanting an explanation. And invariably, the answer comes, why are you being disciplined, you ask? Because you're not listening. Something had to get your attention. You seem to have selective hearing and to tune out what doesn't suit you or what you don't find to be convenient. But if you continue to do so, the results might be disastrous. Well, the truth is, friends, all of us, we only listen some of the time, and we tune out an awful lot of what does not suit us. Today, as one commentator points out, we come to a passage in Holy Scripture that largely deals with a failure to listen. Can you see that in the text? Take a look. Verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 6. They did not listen to Moses. Verse 12 of chapter 6. The people of Israel haven't listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? Or... Chapter 7, verse 4, Pharaoh will not listen to you. 
Or chapter 7, verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them. So this is a passage chock full of not listening to God when he speaks in his word. Now remember what's happened so far. Moses and Aaron bring their message to the elders of Israel. And then they bring that message to Pharaoh. But then Pharaoh rejects Moses' message and makes the life of the Hebrew slaves even worse than it already was. The elders of Israel go to Pharaoh and they beg him for relief. And then when that is denied, they turn. They turn on Moses and Aaron. Moses, remember, cries out to God at the end of chapter 5 for help. And the first eight verses of chapter 6 are God's response to Moses. And the Lord provides a reminder of his faithfulness to his covenant promises and his resolve to be their deliverer. And so as we study this passage briefly today... I want you to notice that genealogy that stands right in the middle of the passage that we're thinking about as we read through all those names with which many of us are probably not terribly familiar. Hebrew Old Testament narrative loves to do this. Something significant is about to happen in the narrative. Something significant is about to happen in the course of redemptive history. And so it gets interrupted. They interrupt it with a little bit of family history to remind the readers, especially the original audience which would have heard this story recounted to them in the promised land in Canaan some 40 plus years later. It does this, Hebrew narrative does this in order to remind the audience of their roots and to remind them of the significance of Moses and Aaron. Now this morning we're not going to be studying the genealogy deeply in our sermon, so just a quick word right now. It is an account of the family tree. It's an account of the genealogy of Moses and Aaron, of the Levites from whom would come, of course, the priestly class in Israel. And it is there to show us, this genealogy is there to show us their significance in God's redemptive plan. And it does remind us, as we read this passage, that God stands over all the events in this chapter. And indeed, over all the events in the book of Exodus. He stands over all things as the sovereign Lord who works all things together for the good of those who love him. He has organized and choreographed, you see, generations of people, family lineages, to bring Moses and Aaron to precisely this point, at precisely this moment, to do precisely this marvelous work. This is no coincidence. God, the Lord, has orchestrated it all. But the thrust of our passage, before and after that genealogy that's wedged in the middle, the thrust of our passage involves three key figures who seem to be hard of hearing with respect to what God is saying to the detriment of their souls. One of the commentaries I studied outlined the passage along this theme and with these figures, and I think that's a helpful way for us to look at it. Three parties who were not listening. Israel, Moses, and Pharaoh. And in our passage, we see that due to their failure to listen, Israel is dejected. She feels dejected. Likewise, secondly, Moses is terrified. And thirdly, Pharaoh is stubborn. He's hard-hearted. So we'll study the passage this morning along those three lines. Let's look, look first there in verse 9 of chapter 6. Verse 9 of chapter 6, thinking first about the people of Israel. Israel is dejected. Israel is understandably discouraged. In, in response to the message of Moses and Aaron, which he no doubt perceives to be a threat to his imperial power, Pharaoh makes the people of Israel's lives a misery. More bricks. More bricks. Gather straw for yourselves. We're not going to provide them for you anymore. 
And when Israel inevitably fails to meet their quota, their taskmasters beat them and accuse them of laziness. Now, some deliverer Moses turned out to be. And in response, in the opening verses of chapter 6, God, remember, gives Moses that message of reassurance and encouragement to his people. He reminds them of his character. He reminds Moses of his power. He reminds Moses of his disposition toward mercy and grace. And he foretells to Moses what he will very, very soon do for Israel. And as we thought about it last week, it really is an Old Testament version of the gospel, the gospel preached beforehand as God speaks to Moses of things like liberation and redemption and adoption and so forth. However, the people, we're told here in verse 9 of chapter 6, despite these promises that God rehearses to Moses and Moses rehearses in turn to them, the people nevertheless refuse to listen to God. And we're told why. Look there, verse 9, chapter 6. Moses spoke this to the people of Israel, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now that expression, broken spirit, that gives us an insight, doesn't it, into the emotional and spiritual condition of God's people at this point. As one commentator put it, the phrase may well point to the kind of resigned defeatism that has simply given in to the perceived inevitability of their absolutely dreadful circumstances. No change is possible, Israel is thinking, and so cynicism and hopelessness has overcome them. Close quote. But that phrase there, broken spirit, in verse 9, it could be legitimately translated differently. In fact, this Hebrew phrase could be translated as hasty temper, And that's the way that same word gets translated later on in the Old Testament in Proverbs 14, verse 29. It could be legitimately translated that way here in this passage, hasty temper. And in that case, it's not just that the Israelites are cynical or demoralized or sinking in self-pity. More than that, their misery has made them resentful and bitter. They are angry. They did not listen to Moses because of their hasty temper and harsh slavery. They will not respond to God's word in faith or trust, but rather they respond to it in bitterness, in disbelief, in doubt, in derision, in scoffing, and in anger. You promise this, Lord? Huh. We'll see. And here I wonder, I just wonder, if the word of God might not be exposing our hearts and pricking our consciences a little bit. Brothers and sisters, here's a good barometer Here's a good barometer of our spiritual health and a good barometer of our growth in grace. How do we, how do we as God's people respond to suffering? How do we as God's people respond to suffering? I dare say this is something that our brethren in Nashville are having to grapple with in a horrifically pointed way this week. How do God's people, when they're met with suffering and misery and woe and tragedy, how do we respond How easy it is to slide into resentment as we live with long, chronic, drawn-out trials as the Israelites did here. You ever find yourself in that position? You're going through hard times. Someone comes along. They put their arm on your shoulder. They remind you of gospel hope. They remind you that God is sovereign over all things. They remind you that God is Lord over all things, that all things happen providentially according to his will. They offer you encouragement, and you decide, you know what? They're just being simplistic and naive and 
he doesn't get it. No one understands. I'm unique, and what I'm going through, my circumstances are unlike anyone else's. I wonder if you can relate to that at all. When a brother or a sister comes along, or maybe even in another circumstance through another medium, the Word of God comes along to offer you that encouragement, to offer you that reminder, to offer you that correction, and you're so bent over in the misery, which is absolutely legitimate of what you're feeling, but you hear that word and that promise and that encouragement come along to you, and your first reaction is not to bow the head in humble reception of it, but to scoff in disbelief. Thanks a lot, God. Yeah, right. Can you relate to that at all? I know that my attitude tends that way far more often than I should. And so we say no to God, and we say no to his word, and we react that way, even when his word seeks to lift our heads from our sorrows and fix our eyes toward Christ. And eventually, eventually, if we're not careful, we may even let our sufferings become reasons not to listen to the Lord, to become excuses for our own disobedience. Our bitterness toward our trials may produce within us calloused hearts that in turn scorns God's promises and turns a deaf ear to his word. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us be on guard. Let us be on guard against such a toxic treasuring of our own pain and bitterness. There is such a thing as a toxic treasuring of our own pain and bitterness. Let us be on guard against that. And by God's word and spirit and grace, may our hearts always be tender. Let us beg and pray that the Lord would always keep our hearts tender, tender and receptive to what the Lord is saying to us in his word, and tender and receptive to the kindness and to the mercy of God. So that's the first thing for us to see. The first group here that's having a hard time listening are the discouraged people of Israel. But then secondly, we see Moses. Moses is terrified and fearful, and we see that in verses 10 down through the genealogy there at the end of verse, to verse 30 of chapter 6. Here's how Moses responds to God's word. Here how, here's how he's not listening. If Israel, on the one hand, is demoralized and bitter, then Moses is over here and he's afraid. He's fearful. And can we blame him? The people have rejected Moses' encouragements. He's been run out of Egypt once already in his life. It's not exactly high on Pharaoh's list of friends in the empire. But God continues to press Moses. Verse 11. Go in. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. And Moses, in classic Moses fashion, begins to argue with God. Now, notice Moses isn't like the Israelites here. He's not so much wallowing in pity. He, he isn't denying God's sovereignty. He isn't giving into a kind of fatalism. But look, verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. And then that same complaint gets repeated later on in verses 28, 29, and 30 of chapter 6. There's a little Hebrew idiom that he's using here. If someone is uncircumcised, figuratively, metaphorically speaking, it means that they are not prepared. They're not fit for the Lord's service. Now Moses found out the hard way back in chapter 4, remember? On his return journey to Egypt, he found out the hard way. He left his son literally uncircumcised, and the Lord almost took his life in judgment upon him. To be uncircumcised is to be unfit for the service in, in the hands of God. And that is what Moses is saying here about his own lips. 
He's saying they're not fit for service. And he's attempting to use the response of Israel, the people of God, to him as, as exhibit A in his, in his courtroom evidence that he's presenting. Look, look, Lord, if your own people, your own people won't listen to me, they won't give me the time of day, then what chance do I have at all with pagan Pharaoh? Now, did you catch the irony? Moses is complaining to God about other people not listening when, in fact, he isn't listening himself. He seems to think, doesn't he, that it's his task to make Pharaoh agree with God or to make Israel agree with God. Now, no wonder he feels incapable or overwhelmed. He's laboring under the impression that it is his responsibility to secure the right outcome for the mission. But what is Moses actually called to do? Is he he called to wrestle people's minds into begrudging conviction or agreement? Or is he called simply to be faithful to proclaim the word he's been given? It's not to make other people believe the message. It's simply to be faithful in heralding the message. The response is God's business. It's not our business. We Reformed people have a high doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and rightly so. B.B. Warfield once said of Calvin, our great forefather, that Calvin was the, the theologian of the Holy Spirit. We have a high doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and we should. But at the same time, I wonder how often do we slip into an unintentional, subconscious swapping of the roles, and we begin to confuse our role with the role of the Holy Spirit. You see, it is the God of all sovereignty and might and grace who will open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears. It is our work to simply, faithfully, accurately tell forth his word. Moses is reluctant to obey because it seems Moses believes God is asking him to do what only God himself can do. And so no wonder he's reluctant. Wouldn't you be? I would. No wonder he argues with God. I love what one man says in his comments on this passage. But, says Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, as we read earlier, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing power may be seen to belong to God and not to us. The power belongs to God, he goes on. Our task is to preach Christ crucified. It is God's work to unstop deaf ears and to open blind eyes and take away hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh. To soften hard hearts, or perhaps to harden them. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, to the one we are a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. That's what our preaching does. For some it is a word of judgment, and others a word of mercy. It is God's business, which we are, then. Our business is the same as Paul's, to implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled. To God, close quote. You know, brothers and sisters, we are called to be faithful witnesses. And whether you're an ordained minister or whether you're an ordinary Christian trying to share the good news with your neighbors, are, are we saying that there's no place for apologetics? Absolutely not. Should we not always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you with gentleness and reverence? 1 Peter 3 15. Of course we should. Of course we should be ready. But if we think that our task is to make other people believe, then we are setting ourselves up for burnout 
and perhaps even paralyzing insecurity. In the words of one man, it is a call we can never fulfill because it is not our call in the first place. Conversion, persuasion, conviction is the work of God. Moses must learn, as must we, that God will do God's work in God's way and in God's time. Close quote. So Israel is not listening and they're discouraged. Moses is not listening and he's paralyzed with an unwarranted fear. And then thirdly and briefly, notice Pharaoh. Look at chapter 7. Verses 1 to 7. God gave Moses and Aaron their instructions, and there in 8, verses 8 to 13, we see the action begin to play out. They are to go and repeat God's command to Pharaoh and to release the people of Israel from bondage. But verse 3, God will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. God will do it to execute judgment on Pharaoh, and on Egypt, and to display his power and his glory to the world. And when they do go back to Pharaoh, just as God told them, Pharaoh demands proof. So they throw Aaron's staff on the ground, and it becomes a serpent. This was the sign that God had given them back in chapter 4, remember, and that had been so impressive to the elders. But here in 11, verses 11 and 12, in chapter 7, do you see Pharaoh is not at all impressed. His magicians, and we're not told the precise number, But his magicians can perform precisely the same miracle many times over, and soon the ground is covered with numerous serpents. Now, the serpent, you may remember, is the royal symbol of Pharaoh. Uh, A cobra posed ready as if it were ready to strike, with his head reared back, meant to evoke feelings of terror toward all of Egypt's enemy. The carved Pharaoh would have been on the royal headdress of Pharaoh, or the carved cobra, excuse me. And so you can almost hear Pharaoh's sneering mockery. (laughs) So, Yahweh, this tribal God of these pitiful Hebrew people, so Yahweh can turn a staff into a snake. Big deal. Wait until you see what the gods of Egypt can do. But then, see verse 12? Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. I love how one commentator puts it. It's a dramatic, crystal clear picture of the victory of the power of God over all and every counterfeit, the claim of every false god. The Lord reigns, and those who stand against him will face his judgment. His victory is assured, and that's the message to Pharaoh. If he will dare to contest with the Lord, he will lose. Close quote. And yet, despite that being the obvious The obvious implication and the obvious message that's to be received, look at verse 13. The message is crystal clear. Though the message is crystal clear, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So Israel is discouraged and depressed and she won't listen. Moses is shell-shocked and afraid and he won't listen. And now Pharaoh, the enemy of God, won't listen because his rebellious heart has been hardened. And we must see, friends... It's not that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, at least not in this instance, but rather God hardens his heart. The order of operations is important. It's not that Pharaoh didn't believe and therefore he hardened his heart. It's rather that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not believe. Do you see, it's an act of judgment upon this wicked man. Do you remember what it says in Romans 9, verse 17? 
The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and on whomever he wills, he hardens. You see, God does not only take away hard and stony hearts and give hearts of flesh. He isn't simply in the business of plucking from destruction sinners and bringing them into his saving mercy. Oh, praise him that he does. Praise him that he does. But do realize, and let us tremble in holy reverence and awe at our God, because we must realize that he also acts in judgment, hardening rebel sinners' hearts that they may be handed over to their own rebellion to face his wrath and curse forever. Here is the most sober and solemn point in this passage. Those who willfully deny the gospel may yet come to that point where they are rendered incapable of responding to the gospel, even though they continue to hear it. We've said before in Exodus that God's glory is a two-edged sword. It's always, it's always salvation through judgment. Whenever, whenever salvation happens on the one side, judgment happens on the other. And we see that all over Scripture. Noah and his family, saved. World, judged. Israel, saved. Egypt and her armies in the Red Sea, destroyed. God's children, redeemed. Christ Jesus, crushed and judged. God is going to get glory. And he's going to get glory whether by our judgment or whether by our deliverance. One commentator says this, It is never safe to say not yet to the call of the gospel. God may yet harden your heart if you walk from here refusing the claims of Jesus Christ. It is not yet too late, however. God made his son a perfect sin bearer in your place if you would but trust him. So don't expose your heart a moment longer than you need to. The possibility of judicial hardening. Let Pharaoh's example chill and warn you to flee the wrath to come. Close quote. So there is a sober warning here. There is a sober warning. But also, strangely even, there's real encouragement for the other two groups that we've already mentioned. You remember Israel? Their sufferings bred in them resentment and resistance to God's kindness. When Moses spoke to them about what God is going to do, they, they take one look at Pharaoh and they see an unmoving tyrant who seemed to wield absolute power over their lives and they were cynical, jaded about any prospect of freedom. It's been over 400 years that we've been wallowing here. You think Pharaoh's going to change his mind now? Yeah, right. But now we're given insider information. The heart of Pharaoh is held in the hand of God, and God has been at work all along, all along, to orchestrate Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh for his glory and for the good of those who love him. Remember Proverbs 21? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He, the Lord, turns it absolutely wherever he will. Who is behind all of this good and bad and ugly? Well, it's the sovereign Lord. And so every trial, every affliction, every difficulty that comes our way is absolutely not outside his purpose and certainly not beyond his reach. It is all done in his wisdom and in his kindness. Strange, sore kindness it may be at times and, and as counterintuitive to our sensibilities as it may seem. But their suffering is not beyond his pale. God has not overlooked them and God has not forgotten. 
Though great distress my soul befell, the Lord my God did all things well. To God all praise and glory. Moses thinks he has to somehow convince Pharaoh. Well, now he's told again by God, no, no, Pharaoh's heart is my business. His heart is in my hand. Your task, Moses, is to preach the words. Mine is to deal with his heart. As one man says, here's the antidote to insecurity, to fear about what others will think of you. You be faithful to God's call in your life. Other people are God's business, and he will get the glory no matter what. You be faithful to the task that he's given you. Close quote. So as many reasons as the characters in our passage have for not listening to God, as many reasons as they have behind them and over them all stands the perfect sovereignty and the inscrutable wisdom and the covenant mercy and the righteous judgment of God himself, the one who works in all things to give his people peace and to dispel fears and to get glory for his name in the salvation and in the judgment of all. Christian, this is your God. Won't you trust him? Won't you bend the knee in trusting faith? Won't you, even even when the faculties of all your own sensibilities, of all the evidences that are around you, even when they tell you otherwise, flee to Christ, rest in him, trust him over and over and over and over all the way to eternity. May the Lord bless to us the ministry of his word today. Let's all pray. Father, thank you for your word and even for these warnings to us. Help us as we listen and know that we ignore you to our own peril. Please, would you work on every heart here so that none might be hardened, but rather that all might be softened and drawn to bend the knee, whether for the first time or anew to King Jesus. And would you do this for your own great glory? It's in Jesus' name that we do ask it. Amen.